Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Heavenly Father, We come together this morning to declare your glory and worth, and we praise you with our hearts and our lips and our ears and our minds. May you be glorified in all that we do here this morning, and we know that within us there is no good thing, yet in your love and mercy you have given your spirit as the seal of our redemption. We come before you this morning to give thanks for the gift of the Helper, the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, not only for your sacrifice of love, but also the promise of the Helper, as you shared with your disciples, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot deceive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This morning we recall and give thanks for the various works of the Holy Spirit as he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness as judgment, as he gives us into all the truth, as he regenerates us and glorifies Christ, as he reveals Christ to us and in us, as he sacrifices, he empowers, he seals, he fills us, as Paul says in Ephesians. He teaches us to pray. He tells us and and seals us and adopts us that we may become the children of God. And he produces us the fruit Lord of the Spirit, and he gives us special supernatural gifts that we may edify each other in church and community. And ending, Father, we ask that we not quench the Spirit's work among us this morning, but may we embrace it and may empower us to continue to grow in you. We pray this in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. Thank him for the Holy Spirit. Take your Bible and turn with me. To Mark chapter 3, we're in an early rejection of Christ as we're looking at and continuing in the later Galilean ministry. He's been through the region of Galilee. Last week we discovered that Jesus is expanding and clarifying who belongs in the family of God. God is creating a new family that's based not on blood ties, but those that are bought by the blood of Christ. It's a family based not on human constructs, but those chosen by God. And we saw that the family of God consists of those that have repented from dead works and turned and put their trust and faith in Christ. They are those that have and are led by the Spirit of God. And the family of God consists of those that love and care for other believers. In today's passage, we find that the scribes have came down from Jerusalem to find out what all the fuss is about. Who is this Jesus that everyone is talking about? You can remember back in chapter 3 of Mark, verses 7 and 8, that Jesus' fame had been spreading throughout the region, and people are coming in droves to see him, including those from Jerusalem. So these esteemed men, these scribes from Jerusalem, are coming down to Capernaum, that area, to investigate who Jesus is. However, we must remember that these men are not honestly seeking to confirm and investigate 
Jesus' ministry or to join him. Mark tells us in chapter 3, verse 6, that they were actually seeking to destroy Jesus and to put an end to his ministry. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 27, we're going to read the first portion of our passage this morning, where Mark writes through the gift of the Holy Spirit, says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying that he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, that indeed he may plunder his house. Father, I pray that you open our minds and hearts that the Spirit may have free reign in us this morning. Let us receive your word with gladness. Let us seek to understand what your word has for us. Lord, let us seek to respond to the Spirit's work this morning. And may we apply these things to our lives. And Lord, let me speak the words that are edifying, to build up, to encourage, to warn, to challenge. And Father, I pray that you may be glorified as we do so. We pray this in the name of Christ once again. Amen. You might remember that last week Jesus' family thought that he was insane, that he was out of his mind, that he was a lunatic. This week the scribes come with an accusation that's a little bit different. They attributed Jesus' power to cast out demons as a plot by Satan, the prince of demons. They accused Jesus essentially of being possessed himself by Beelzebub. Beelzebub was the name of a god of the Philistines, meaning Lord of the Dwelling name would later be identified with Satan. I want to answer the question of Satan. First, for some of you may be confused or may not know all about Satan. Let me just give you a little biography, so to speak. The word Satan means an adversary, an opponent, and an enemy. In Scripture, he is identified as the chief adversary of God. Not that he is on par or equal with God, but that he seeks to thwart God's plans. He is depicted as the ruler of a powerful kingdom standing in opposition to the kingdom of God that Jesus has come to institute and inaugurate. He is a fallen angel who was condemned because of great pride. He has no power other than what he has been given by God. And let me challenge you once again. I remember we had a deacon a long time ago in a church and for some reason he believed the demon or Satan had the same powers of God. He was omniscient he was omnipresent. They can be everywhere. And that's not true. In Job, we see that he must have permission from God to even operate and to move about. He is the ruler of the other fallen angels that are called demons. His end has been written in that he will be cast into the lake of fire to spend eternity at the end of the millennium. So this is who they were saying Jesus was possessed by. So their accusation that Jesus was possessed by Satan was a very serious accusation as it would really pit Jesus as an enemy of God the Father. It would go against the very testimony of Mark who identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God at the beginning of his gospel. It would fly directly in the face of the testimony of the Father who said of Jesus at the end of his baptism, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It makes Jesus and Mark, and God the Father, liars. Jesus, as his custom was, 
answers their question with another question using a parable. The question is simple. How can Satan cast out Satan? He then proposes what I'm going to call three axioms with an if statement. You've heard of those, the if, that little word, if. Axioms are statements that are accepted as true as the basis for an argument, a debate. It's an established rule or principle or something that is self-evident truth. It is something that everyone say, yes, this is true. It's very evident that it's true. So the first axiom, if you're taking notes, it's not on the screen, but if you want to follow along just as I speak, is in verse 24. When he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. A very self-evident truth. We understand that kingdoms rarely fall from outside forces. It usually falls from within. We think of the greatest empire, Rome. And yes, they were attacked by the Huns and, and the Germanic northern tribes, the barbarians, so to speak. But before they ever stormed the walls and the territories of Rome, Rome had crumbled from the inside out. If you know history, you know it's true. They become so infatuated themselves, so self-absorbed and so self-gratification that they eventually just crumbled. And we understand that as most things crumble from the inside out. Jesus is just saying it's not that the fact that that kingdom falls from without. If it's divided, there's no longer can that kingdom stand. It goes together with axiom number two that's found in verse 25 when he says, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Again, without loyalty and unity, it fails. We see those things in power struggles in homes. When divorce and homes are broken up, it's not usually the pressure factors from outside. It's the fact that inside it wasn't strong and it crumbles and it falls to the, eventually to the pressure cracks. We see that when we think of Britain and England and its fights and arguments they would have in the throne room and those types of things in which one person is working against the other and assassinations and plots against each other. Same thing in a church. A church will not fall from those things that are without. It's going to fall from those things that are within. Isn't that true? We know these things to be true. A kingdom cannot stand if it's divided. A house itself cannot stand if it's divided. Unity is very important. And let me say just as a note on the side, is our unity is not found in speaking one language or looking the same or coming from the same economic, social, and background. It's found in the Spirit. It's found in the fact that we are children of God. Amen? It's found in that. Never in anything else. And the third axiom is found in verse 26 as he continues his if statements. When if he says, if Satan has risen up against himself, as he's bringing to a conclusion, and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. He's self-defeating is what he's saying. He's his own worst enemy. We hear that from time and time again, that someone is their own worst enemy. They're self-destructive. <coughs> so Jesus is bringing and saying, listen, these things are true. You know it's true. So he concludes in verse 27 that the self-evident truth is that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good. And look at that verse. He says, unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. We may think of someone who's going to break into someone's house. If he's going to do it while someone's there, he can't do it while the man of the house is there or when someone's there. He's going to bind them first. He's going to make sure that they're incapacitated. 
Same place you're going into a store. We know these things. Jesus is saying, listen, a kingdom by itself, if it's divided, will not stand. A house divided will not stand. No, Satan, if he's against himself, if he's self-destructive, will not stand. First, you've got to bind that man. Then you can do. Jesus is now, by that question, he's answering how he's able to cast out demons. How is he able to exercise? How does he have authority over the supernatural? How is he to say, be quiet? What is your name? And then cast out in a couple chapters, we're going to see a a great instance where Jesus cast out a demon. How is he able to do that? Is it by the power of Satan? Is this just some simple plot that Satan is trying to work to confuse people? No. Jesus points it out. It would not happen. He's able to cast out the demons and have power over the supernatural because he's the Messiah. He has plundered the house of Satan. He's taken him at the temptation. We see not so much from Mark, but from the rest of the Gospels, that he passed that test. Satan has no power to pressure him to make him fall. Jesus has complete authority over Satan. You see, Jesus is making two claims here. Number one, he is not working with Satan. He is no co-laborer with that adversary, the enemy of God. And Number two, he's destroying the works of Satan. Scripture tells us in 1 John 3.8 that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Colossians 2.12, it says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and that he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus is saying, there's no way. I've plundered this man. I've bound this strong man. I don't cast him out by the power of Satan, but I cast him out in my own power and my own authority. I have broken into his home. I have tied him up. He has no authority, no power over me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul asks this question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? The answer is none. It's rhetorical. They have none. Jesus is saying, I'm Messiah. I'm the Son of God. What work would I have to do with Satan? How would we work in tandem together? This was a wrong-headed and wicked accusation against Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus now turns and warns them, of what you and I call now the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. It's a strong warning of condemnation to those who would say he has an unclean spirit. Look at Mark chapter 3. Read verses 28 to 30. Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you that all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, what? Never, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of what type of sin? Eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is a strong warning. It was a strong accusation. They're coming down, they're seeing Jesus, they're hearing the news, they've sent their spies. They're telling them, listen, this man is healing people. He is doing some things that we've never heard of. His teaching is such that it's amazing us. It's shutting us down. We don't even know what to do with this guy. And everyone is saying that he's the Messiah. Voices have thundered from heaven that this is the Son of God. 
cannot have any of that. This man, Jesus, he wants to heal someone. He wants to do good on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? What is he thinking? Can he wait an extra day? Look at this. He's changing our customs. It says they're not seeking to just quiet him. They're seeking to destroy him. Satan works that way many times as he tries to call what's good evil and evil good. He seeks to accuse us. Revelation says that he stands at the throne room of God accusing the brethren day and night. In the same way he points his finger at Jesus and says he's not the son of God. He does the same thing to you and I. You're not children of God. You can't be children of God. These are strong accusations, strong words. Jesus responds just as strongly with a warning of condemnation. See, Jesus informs the scribes that, yes, all sins and blasphemy of man is forgivable, but he says there is one. There is one that is so hideous. There is one that is so terrible, that is so wicked, that it would never be forgiven, that it's eternally a sin. What is that? It's the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. That penalty is for eternity. This is an alarming and shocking statement to you and I who stand on this side of redemption. David writes to the Lord, To hide your face from my sins and to blot out all my iniquities. We hold on to those types of prayers. Again, David says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. And when does east and west meet? Never. They're in always opposition. He says your sins can be blotted out and never will they be brought out. We think of there's no condemnation to us. But here Jesus is telling them that there is a sin that condemns them of guilty as an eternal sin. There is a sin which God will not forgive. How can this be? So onerous is this sin, so terrible is its consequences, we must determine, you and I must come and say exactly what is this sin? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What does it entail? And more importantly, am I guilty of it? I'm sure there's probably many of us that may have thought one way or another, I may be guilty of that sin. Or we think that we're so far from redemption that God could never forgive us. And let me tell you, Satan plays those types of mind tricks. There may be others that we think are so far from redemption that we don't even share with them the gospel. We need to be careful before we make this accusation that someone is unredeemable and unforgivable. We need to understand what Jesus is saying here. First, let me tell you this. The unforgivable, the unpardonable sin is not It is not divorce. Growing up, I know many people in the 70s and 80s and some denominations and some type of churches used to treat divorced people as second-class citizens, as those that God will just barely forgive. And let me tell you, that's not the case. There is a law in which God says divorce is something that He hates. He does not desire it. It's not His creation plan, but He understands that it happens and He has given us grace and gospel to help those. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you have been divorced, God accepts the repentance and the confession that that's sin if it was not of a biblical nature. But also, He blesses that union. That union you have is of God and God blesses it and He blesses the children of it. 
So let me tell you, if anyone has ever told you anything else, let me say right here today that divorce is not the unpardonable sin God forgives and God blesses and God restores. Amen? So please, would you accept that? And would you hold on to that? It's not suicide. Many will say that the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin is suicide because you cannot take a rite or a sacrament afterwards. You can't go to confession afterwards. It seems to make sense. It seems to be logical. But again, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. And you may say, wait a second. Well, will someone who's a Christian, are they capable of committing suicide? I'm going to give you my answer. I believe yes. I believe in the clarity of someone's mind, they can repent of their sin and turn and trust Christ, but with the chemicals and other biological things that happen in people's life, that they may despair of hope at a moment and make a decision that cost them their life. Yes, I believe so. There may be some of you who may argue that case, well, maybe so, and we'll let Scripture be the end. But I do not believe that suicide is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Suicide is not the issue. Can we let Scripture define, let Jesus define His words and not us? It's not homosexuality. That seems to be the big one. God can forgive. We hear stories many times where God redeems those. It's not some addiction. It's not some other type of problem. Let me tell you this. The unpardonable, unforgiving sin is not rejecting the Father. And it's not rejecting Christ. And you say, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. You mean I can reject the Father and reject Jesus and still go to heaven? Yes, God will forgive that. We see Scripture proofs of it. Paul himself, before he was known Paul, was Saul. He rejected Jesus day in and day out. Not only did he reject Jesus, but he went out to kill anyone who said Jesus was the Messiah. And in essence, he was actually rejecting the Father's gift to the world. But God miraculously came down and met him in a supernatural way. You and I, at one time, rejected the Father and rejected Christ, did we not? But God in His grace reached down and He saves us. So let's examine then what Scripture is telling us. What were the scribes doing that led Jesus to say that there is a sin that's unforgivable, that they were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Let's look at what it says. The first thing that they were doing, they were calling good evil, and they knew that it wasn't. Isaiah says, and this is something they would have been aware of, it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, they heard and saw Jesus' healings. They saw that it was doing good. They saw His teachings that promoted God and glorified the God. They saw the exorcism that released people from demon possessions. And they called that evil. Because He did it on a Sabbath. Or He did it when they didn't want Him to. You see, what was going on, and this is something that we need to be careful, we live in a society that desperately wants to take what is good and call it evil and take evil and promote it as good. This is what they were doing. They looked at Jesus and saw all that he was doing and said, what he's doing is evil, let's destroy him. By the way, light will always do that to those that are in darkness. Those that are in darkness do not want to see the light. They hate anyone that's in the light. The second thing that they did, they proclaimed that Jesus' power was not divine, but derived 
from the occult. It wasn't that he was from God the Father. It wasn't that his power was something given to him by God, but it was something that was from the occult that was from Satan and the demons himself. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. Jesus himself was possessed by Satan. Wayne Grudem explains the unforgivable, unpardonable sin is a clear knowledge of who Christ is and of the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. The unpardonable, unforgivable sin consists of someone who has a clear knowledge of who Christ is and the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Let me tell you, the scribes knew exactly who Jesus was. The demons knew exactly who Jesus was. It includes a willful rejection of the facts about Christ that his opponents knew to be true. It's not that they were deceived and did not know that Jesus and what he was doing was good and true. It's that they believed it, but yet they needed attributed to something else. They knew, willfully rejected the facts about Christ and his opponents knew those things to be true. And thirdly, it was slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the power of Satan. That's what the unforgivable, unpardonable sin consists of. A clear knowledge of who Christ is and a willful rejection of the facts about Christ, even though when we know they're true, and then it's slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the power of Satan. He continues to write, Wayne Grubin, that the sin is unpardonable because it cuts off the sinner from repentance and saving faith through the belief in the truth. One theologian defines this sin in this way. Please listen. He says, this sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slander against the evidence and the conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ and attributing it out of hatred and enemy to the prince of darkness. You see, these men saw the evidence of Christ. I believe they were convicted by the Spirit, but yet they hardened their hearts against that very work of the Holy Spirit and denied it. It is committing that sin that man willfully, maliciously, and intentionally attributes what is clearly recognized as the work of God to the influence and operation of Satan. So it's understanding exactly. I believe these scribes, it's not that they were fooled. It's not they were blinded. It's that the Holy Spirit was doing a work. I think it was churning in their hearts. But yet instead of receiving it and accepting it, they needed to destroy it, deflect it, and point it to something else other than the work of the Father. But you may ask, well, what about repentance and confession of sin? Don't we see in 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Could not that forgive us? If I finally realize that, will He not do so? Well, let me tell you, that is our great hope. That if we repent and confess God, He will forgive. Amen? Paul promises in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be what? saved. But you must admit that. You must confess that. See, the scribes here are not going to confess that. They would put their hands and just mark at them. The Bible tells us that without the Holy Spirit, no one can call Jesus Lord. We must have that Spirit. 
But as John Piper observes, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws from ever his convicting power so that we're never able to repent and be forgiven. You see, the only way that you and I are drawn to Christ is through the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the prayer of thanksgiving that we gave earlier to the Spirit. Without it, you and I would never know Christ. John says, you must be born again. And it's the Spirit who borns again. And it blows through these scribes' heart. It just continues to go through. For they're unwilling to accept and reject the Holy Spirit's work. As some of us have in our lives. But yet there eventually was a time when we broke down and God showed us who He was through the Spirit. And we responded. You see, it's a heart that has been hardened to the point of no return. It's one who has turned their back on Jesus, knowing fully well who Jesus is. Theologian Walter Wessel writes that it's not an isolated act, but a settled condition of the soul. And see, that's what we need to understand. And I think that's where you and I struggle, because we feel that we've done it. Let me ask you, where's your soul at? Where's your heart? It's not an isolated act. There may be times that you may yell, I hate you, God. Or I can't stand it. Or what is God doing this for me? Or maybe you've taken Jesus Christ's name in vain and swore. And you think, that's it, I've committed that sin. That's an isolated act. I pray that it is. I pray that anyone that's hearing my voice has not settled in their heart of who Jesus is and have rejected that very truth. I pray that it be not so. See, the scribes knew very well that Jesus was no ordinary prophet. They knew the scriptures. They knew his acts of mercy and healing were good. They knew his teachings were true. I believe they were convicted. I believe they were torn asunder. But they just did not want to accept it. You may ask, have you committed the sin? I go back to R.C. Rao. If you can ever read any of his stuff, I'll tell you it's profitable for your soul. Type it into Google, you'll find many things. You can get a quote a day from him. He writes that there is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven. We must understand that. But those who are troubled about it the most are unlikely to have committed it. And Walter Russell responds that on the other hand, those who actually do commit the sin are so dominated by evil that it's unlikely that they would be aware of it. I know many times people come and say, you know what, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I just feel like, I'm not sure, I'm just struggling with it. Well, let me tell you, my first thought is when someone tells me that, is that the Spirit must be working. You're either in the kingdom or you're very close to the kingdom. What I worry more about is those people who proclaim Christ, who may come to church, who may come and hear the word, but their hearts are so hardened that they never have confession and repentance in their life. They are so entrenched in their own self-righteousness. They may proclaim Christ, but their heart is so hardened that they reject the very workings of the Spirit in their life. That's what I'm more concerned about. I'm not so much concerned about those that may be working in that, I'm more concerned about people who say, I've been a Christian all my life, and I'm a good person. Who come and say, well, you know what? I didn't get anything out of your message today. Or when you challenge them in the Word, you say, well, you know what? I've got it all together. Those are people that are more curious to me 
about what the work of the Spirit is in their life. For as the theologian says, if you're worried about it, you're probably okay. Because you haven't hardened your heart. It's those who think that they're okay are the ones who are guilty of this. The scribes did not think that there was something wrong with them. No, he would say, I thank God that I'm not like this sinner here. It's the sinner who's beating his chest and says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. What's your thoughts? How do you pray? Do you say, Lord, give me this because I deserve it? Do you read his word and says, this is not for me? Do you see the Holy Spirit working in people's life and you're so skeptical and angry at everything else that you're ready just to cut people off? Then I'd be concerned about the Spirit's work. The way to settle this question, very simple. is: are you guilty like the scribes of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Are you in danger committing this unforgivable, unpardonable sin? Ask this question. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you make of the evidence of Jesus as you and I have read Mark? We've seen His power over the supernatural. We've seen His power over the natural world. We've seen His healings. We've read of His exorcisms. We've read of His teachings. Let me ask you, who do you say Jesus is? In our scripture reading earlier, Jesus told disciples, if you see Me, you've seen the Father. If you believe in the Father, believe in Me. And he says, if you don't believe in that, then at least believe in the works that I have done. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you say about the evidence? The scribes shift through the evidence and they said, oh, can't accept that. Who do you say? C.S. Lewis was a medieval literature scholar, popular writer. You may know him from Chronicles of Narnia. He's a Christian apologist and former atheist. He used this argument that I'm about to read in a series of radio talks during World War II. It came together in a book called Mere Christianity. I recommend it to you. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. He says, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Can you think of anyone like that today? Oh, I could. We could name them off. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be of the devil of hell. He goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open up to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And I consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and that he is God. Josh McDowell, another Christian writer and apologist of our generation, has simplified that argument down to three words. You might know him, you might read of his book, that Jesus was either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. What say you? With every head bowed and every eye closed.
I would ask for you to pause and pray and consider and respond to the Word of God today. Who do you say Jesus is? What is the evidence? If He's the Son of God, if the Spirit has revealed that to you, would you respond in repentance and confession? And would you join with all of creation that one day will say that He is Lord? And then you live your life as a reflection of that. Or you here this morning, you've seen the evidence. The Spirit has talked to you, but yet you cannot yet call Him Lord. Would you please do so? Would you please do so today? Do not harden your heart. Do not approach the point that you would say the things of Christ, the things of His church, the things of His people are evil. But good. Would you respond? to whatever the Spirit may be working in your heart this morning. Father, you're so good to us. And I thank you for your word that just so clearly established for us how we can come to repentance and confession of faith. And Father, I pray that all that are here and all that hear my voice would come to know you, proclaim that you are Lord. And Father, that our hearts will submit to you, that our knees will bow, our hearts will bow, and we will be satisfied in you. If there's any here this morning that have not done so as of yet, Lord, would you give your convicting power to them that is so strong, let them taste and see that you're good. Father, Lord, that you'd let them know that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to them. Lord, would you just change their heart, open it and let them see clearly who you are. May their thirst and hunger Lord, be satisfied with your word and with your revelation. And Father, I pray if there's any here that are in danger of that unforgivable, unpardoned sin, if there are any that are here that are close to harden their heart to a point in which your spirit will just move away from them, Lord, I pray that you would just give a special power of spirit upon them this morning, that they may not go that way. And Father, may we ever be about your word, that we may share that with others, that others may come to know you and never be guilty of eternal sin. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.